0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new four-week series in the book of Matthew called The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 to 25 as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: Passion, it's an interesting word, don't you think? it can speak to a person's overwhelming desire. I mean, someone's gonna say, I'm passionate about the arts or something like that. You know, someone else is passionate about justice and maybe out of that, you know, they work to bring changes in the criminal justice system. And another person's passionate about, I don't know, baseball or about the environment or about cooking, whatever consumes us and becomes the centerpiece of our lives, well, we call that passion. But of course, passion is sometimes a synonym or well, for sexual desire. And in that case, as in the case of someone who might be, you know, consumed by anger, you know, passion can be temporary and negative. But whatever the word passion has as its object, it's seen as something so consuming that all other interests become secondary. That's passion. I'm beginning today a four-week series, Matthew twenty-one to twenty-five, which I've entitled The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. And by calling it the beginning, I don't want to give the impression that this is the time when Jesus' passion was first awakened. You know, from the beginning of his life, there was always an overwhelming passion for accomplishing the will of the Father. You need only to think of Jesus in the temple. He's a boy, 12 years of age. He stays in Jerusalem, sitting at the feet of the teachers of the law, listening intently and asking questions. His parents finally find him, and he says to them, Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? It's not just that he loves being in the temple, it's that he has a divine must. He must be there. This is what he must do, even though he be misunderstood. Or think of Jesus in the wilderness. He's being tempted by the devil, and he's turning down the offer of the kingdoms of this world and all their glory, and he's accepting the humble path that he must worship the Lord God and him alone, and he alone will he serve. It's not that I use the phrase, the beginning of his passion, as if to signal that Jesus discovered the passion of his life when he first drew near to Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, rode into the city with the cries of, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus didn't at that point experience the awakening of a slumbering desire to be the Messiah and carry out the plans of the Father. Go back again to that 12-year-old boy in the temple. I must be about my father's business. That's the passion that he bore for an entire lifetime. But when we come to Matthew chapter 21, we see Jesus coming to the place where his passion would always lead him, to the place of rejection by men, to the place of doing what was pleasing to the Father, to the place of suffering. To call this the beginning of his passion is to talk about the beginning of the fulfillment of all he had come on earth to do. Well, as I have said, today's an introduction to Matthew 21 to 25. It's the beginning of the last week in Jesus' life. He'll ride into Jerusalem on Sunday. He'll be crucified on Friday. Then in fulfillment of the plan of the Father, he's going to rise from the dead on Sunday, and he's going to usher in the era of the new covenant and the creation of the new people of God but we'll stop short of the latter part of this week. Indeed, in Matthew 21 to 25, we go no further than Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Three days in the life of Jesus and three days that are filled with purpose and meaning in which it seems that every moment is so rich with purpose and meaning and the fulfillment of the plan of the Father. Well, before we describe what we will study, let's step back and discuss the book of Matthew, and see if we can get a context for the next five chapters that make up this book. Let's start at a most basic level. The New Testament begins with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they tell us the story of Jesus. And after that, the rest of the New Testament spells out the ramifications of that story. And so if you want to learn about Jesus, who he was, what he did, the message that he brought to the world, you'll have to begin with those four books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But why four books rather than just one grand volume about Jesus? And furthermore, why so many similarities, especially in the first three of those books? I remember one conversation with a critic some years ago who had just begun to read the New Testament, and he told me that's all nonsense, and I asked why. And he said, it just keeps repeating the same old stories. How about it doesn't? You know, I've used this illustration before, and if if you're my regular listener, please forgive me, but I must use it again. Imagine an automobile accident, I mean, of the serious variety. The police are trying to piece together what actually happened, and they have four witnesses, all who saw what happened. One witness was in a car on the road following the cars that had the accident. A second witness was in the opposing lane coming toward the cars when the accident happened in front of him. A third witness was standing on the sidewalk, and the accident happened as he looked across the street. And finally, the fourth was standing on the overpass, looking down. Let's assume that all four witnesses are very observant, absolutely truthful, and they're able to recount the accident just the way it actually happened. So much so that they share many similarities, but each tells the story from their unique perspective, that is, from where they're standing. But each one has a perspective that's unique to them. That's why we're reading four Gospels. And the important thing when one reads them is to ascertain, using my analogy, of where they're standing. Now, all four eyewitnesses agree. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's come into the world to fulfill the Father's promise to bring about salvation from sin and death and the judgment to come. But there's something unique about all four. Three of the four are called synoptic gospels, and that means they overlap in a great many places so that they're very similar. And those three are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The fourth, the one that's different, is John. Some scholars have suggested that the difference between the synoptics and John has something to do with a very distinct difference in perspective. Think again about my illustration of the accident and the eyewitnesses. I said that one of the four witnesses was on the overpass overlooking the accident. Now think about that in terms of the story of Jesus. One was standing on the overpass and he was looking down and that was John. His perspective is unique. He starts the book from above. He tells about what happened in the beginning, in eternity past, in the relationship between the Father and the Son. See, John's perspective of Jesus as the Son of God is the most explicit of all. But the other three tell the story, well, from street level. Matthew and Luke begin the story of Jesus' birth. That's the starting place. And Mark skips over the birth and jumps right in at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So let's talk more explicitly of the three synoptics. You know, many scholars believe that Mark was written first, and that may well be. You know, in the past, I have suggested that there is a likelihood that all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had access to a set of notes that all of them shared. I think the one who made those notes, that is, while the action was happening, well, I think it was none other than Matthew himself. But let's get to Mark, if indeed he did produce the first written gospel. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, and he presents Jesus as a man of action. And one of Mark's favorite expressions is the word immediately. See, Mark contains only two discourses of Jesus, but it contains 20 miracles of Jesus. You know, these make up a third of his Gospel. He means to show us Jesus as the man of authority. Mark presents Jesus as a man who claims authority over sin, over the Sabbath, over nature, over disease, and so forth. But Mark's gospel also presents Jesus as the suffering son of man and as the servant of God. And so if I were to give a short description of Mark, I would say that Mark is the gospel of the suffering son of man. And let's skip ahead to Luke. Luke is the longest gospel. It's the work of a careful researcher who takes the time to interview many eyewitnesses. And in Luke, Jesus is described as the long expected Messiah, as the servant, but also as the Lord. And unlike Matthew, which we will see later, Luke scatters the many teachings of Jesus all throughout his book, rather than concentrating them into five sections as Matthew does. See, in that sense, Luke really is a chronological count of the life of Jesus. So the teachings of Jesus, his miracles, his parables, and so forth, are scattered throughout the gospel as it actually happened. And Luke, the miracles of Jesus help us understand that Jesus really is Lord, who inaugurated his kingdom, and he also offers salvation to the Gentiles. So what's unique about Matthew? Well, Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Matthew is constantly quoting from the First Testament. Matthew is concerned to show Jesus as the man who did not reject Israel, but Israel rejected him. Matthew then, in his story of Jesus, tells how Jesus fulfills the promise of the First Testament and how he truly is the only hope that Israel has and by that also the hope of the whole world. If Luke is directed towards a Gentile audience, Matthew is directed towards a Jewish audience. And because of that, Matthew presents Jesus in a series of teachings, five prominent ones, in which he shows that Jesus fulfills the hopes of the promised kingdom of God.
0: The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like no other, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our most recent trip said, listening to Pastor John teach the Bible while looking and breathing the air where the events he speaks about may have actually happened, puts doubts of the authenticity of the Bible to rest. So, make plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming spring from April 16th to the 24th, 2023, and consider the optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. Join us in the Holy Land with on-location teaching from Dr. John Newfeld, and wonderful evenings of entertainment with Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway and very special musical guest, Amanda Stott. For more information, the trip itinerary or registration forms, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: The thing that makes Matthew unique is not just because, you know, the attention that Matthew gives to the fulfillment of the First Testament scriptures. What makes Matthew unique is the way in which he tells the story of Jesus. Well, Matthew tells the entire story by centering our attention on five discourses or five teachings that Jesus gave. Well, that's not to say that Jesus didn't have more teachings. And we simply read through Luke and, and find how many times Jesus actually taught. But Matthew arranges the action of the life of Jesus around key moments in which he either taught the crowds or taught his disciples. The first of those discourses is found in Matthew 5 to 7. It's also called a Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is then just outside the town of Capernaum, which he has made into his hometown. It's the, the base of his operations in Galilee. There's a hill there overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and there the crowds flocked to see him, and there he taught them about the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, for they are called the sons of God, and so forth. That discourse, that sermon, taught both his disciples as well as others about the life of the kingdom of heaven. Around that teaching, Matthew tells the accounts of Jesus healing many, his authority over nature, his casting out of demons, as well as the healing of the paralytic, and so forth. But he also lets his disciples know that the harvest is plentiful. There are many people who desperately want to be a part of his kingdom. So we come to the second discourse, and it's found in Matthew 10. And this is a discourse that's given only to the 12. He's then sending them out on mission to reach the lost, and he has instructions for them. He wants them to know that the message of the kingdom that they're called to preach is going to encounter significant resistance. It's not going to be a cakewalk. It's, it's going to involve persecution. His twelve can expect to be arrested and handed over into the courts, flogged in the synagogues, dragged before governors and kings. Jesus didn't come to bring peace but a sword. But his twelve are to be bold and not fear, for they will by no means lose their eternal reward. Again, we're given a great deal of action after that. John the Baptist is in prison. Jesus is strongly challenged by the Jewish religious authorities. Jesus may be preaching the kingdom of heaven, but a great many people, first of all, don't believe him, and second, feel deeply threatened by them. That's the Pharisees. They even say that he's casting out demons by the power of the chief of demons himself. And all of this, they say, is simply a show of power meant to confuse. We come then to the third discourse and that's found in Matthew 13, and here Matthew lumps together into one chapter, you know, a number of the kingdom parables that Jesus was teaching everywhere. And if there's anything all these parables demonstrates, it's that Jesus wants his disciples to know that initially the kingdom of heaven is going to be small and there will be those that reject it as well as those who, you know, oppose and try to destroy it. But in the end, it will succeed in encompassing the entire earth. But with that, Matthew outlines the rising conflict. John the Baptist is then executed. Yeah, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He does walk on water and he continues to heal the sick. And he demonstrates his authority as king. But the Pharisees are mounting a significant campaign against him. And in this conflict, several times, Jesus speaks openly about his coming death in Jerusalem. The cost of the kingdom is going to cost the king himself his life. And then we come to the fourth discourse, and that's found in Matthew 18. You know, the discourse comes about because the disciples want to know who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven to come. And this discourse is about the community life of the people of the kingdom. The greatest will be the least. The least will be the greatest. Those who refuse to forgive their enemies are going to be cast out. Forgiveness, reconciliation, grace is going to mark his followers. And with that, the action now moves towards Jerusalem. The king who has instructed them about the nature of his kingdom is now going to the place where he will demonstrate the ultimate value of the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom will be one of service, of love, of sacrifice. And as he said in Matthew 20, verse 25 to 28, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And with that, we move to the beginning of his passion. The King, Jesus, the hope of Israel, the inheritor of David's throne, the long-expected Messiah, had not come to lord it over others. He had come as a servant, one who would give his life as a ransom that would save many. You know, a ransom is a price paid to set a captive free. And all through his ministry, Jesus had been doing just that. The woman with the issue of blood, who had suffered for 12 years, was healed from the power of Satan, Jesus said. The Canaanite woman, whose daughter was severely oppressed by a demon, was set free. The man who was paralyzed, who was lowered from the roof, not only was given the power to walk again, but he was forgiven of his sins. ransomed. a price would be paid so that he and so many others would be set free. And yet in spite of what Jesus taught, his disciples still hadn't grasped it. I mean, their only understanding of what Jesus was doing is that he was leading the way to enter Jerusalem and take David's throne and rule all Israel and all the world from there. And in that, they were not wrong, but their timing, well, that was wrong. And so not realizing that Jesus was going to Jerusalem not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, we close out Matthew chapter 20, just before riding into Jerusalem, with a mother of James and John requesting that her sons would be given the highest places of honor in the coming kingdom. No understanding of suffering, only an understanding of the glory that was yet to come. And it's with this background that we come to Matthew 21 to 25. We'll see, it's Sunday, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to the cries of the crowd that clearly expected, and finally, at this Passover celebration, that the Messiah had come, that the long night of Israel's occupation by the Romans was over, that the king would take his throne, that he would drive the enemies of Israel out and rule the world from Jerusalem. And of course, as we know, all of that would end on Friday when the Messiah would be taken to be crucified on a Roman cross. But before that would happen, Jesus would enter into Jerusalem to much cheering and anticipation. Then he would drive the money changers and sellers of temple sacrifices from the temple. And all of that would lead to a conflict, a power play. The religious leaders want to take him down. They want to discredit him before his followers and make a fool of him before all of Israel. They also want to murder him, and they're looking for the right time to do that. So the battle is engaged, one trick question after another. Just get him to say something stupid, something that we can use against him, something that can justify the evil we're planning against him. And Jesus, for his part, is on his game. He not only answers the most difficult questions that are put before him, he turns the matter around. He goes from playing defense to playing offense, that the religious teachers themselves can't answer the questions that he asks of them. And not done with that, Jesus will turn his guns squarely on the scribes and the Pharisees. He tells them that they don't practice what they preach. He tells them they lay burdens on people's shoulders. They make people's lives difficult, but they're unwilling to lift a single burden. They're a curse. And he's not done. If only the burden thing were all that he was criticizing them for. He says the Pharisees have shut the door to the kingdom of heaven for many. And for this reason, they're profoundly unclean. They are a brood of vipers. Indeed, how are they to be saved from the hell that awaits them? And after telling us of this encounter with the Pharisees, Matthew then recounts the fifth discourse of Jesus. This one covers two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. And we often call this one the Olivet Discourse. And that's because Jesus gave this teaching while sitting on the Mount of Olives. And for those of you who don't know the geography, let me describe it. The Mount of Olives is a hillside. It's covered with olive trees. I suppose that's symbolic because all of these olives will be crushed, even as Jesus will soon be crushed. But looking out from that hillside, Jesus and his disciples would have looked down a very steep ravine that's called the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, rising sharply before them, would have been the stunning view of the temple made up of massive stones and gold. It was utterly spectacular. And it's here that Jesus leads his disciples into the greatest insight of the coming kingdom. He takes his disciples from the present hour to the end of the age. Yeah, he's gonna be crucified, he's gonna rise again. And eventually his followers will inherit his kingdom. He is truly the one who will rule the earth. And here we see the passion of Jesus on full display. One day he will judge the entire human race. So here we have in these five chapters of Matthew, the beginning of the passion of Jesus a passion to do the will of the Father, and to bring all of creation under the Father's rule. That's Christ's agenda. And reading this text should make that our agenda
0: as well. Thanks so much, John. Looking very much forward to this series. let me ask you this, you know, at the beginning you talked about the different definitions of the word passion. And it can go in a lot of different directions, but can you help us understand a little bit better the context in respect to Jesus?
1: Well, yes. When we talk about the passion of Jesus, we do speak, I mean, yes, the the passion of his suffering, so his actual experience and the intensity in which he entered into those experiences of sufferings but we also speak about the passion that Jesus had to do the will of the Father. That nothing but nothing is gonna detract him from doing that which the Father has called him to do. It's the singleness of mind that
0: draws our attention. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, and Bible teaching you can trust.
1: Hey, it's Phil Calloway. I
0: want to tell you about my newest book with Laugh Again, 12 Days of Christmas Stories. In it, I share 12 of my favorite Christmas stories to help you laugh and think about Christmas.
1: This beautiful coffee table book includes Bible readings from the real Christmas story.
0: It's perfect for reflection, reading around the dinner table, or sharing with kids of all ages at bedtime. And there are bonus features too. Four of my
1: favorite stories have special QR codes that lead you to four videos where I read the story for you. 12 Days of Christmas Stories is filled with colorful illustrations, perfect for a new Christmas tradition. Finally, this book is our gift to you. Just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca and request your free copy. Did I say free? I did, Merry Christmas.